Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 110th episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that shows up in the same pack every time. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product. We're shipping them both to the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MGG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, good evening, everybody. Just been a little less than a week, but James and I just couldn't wait to share more insight with you all. Uh, (laughs) Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the Travis, the the theme of tonight's discussion, I'm getting a very good feeling about MTG finance in 2018. Okay. Based on what uh, we know about M25, which is already out, and what it looks like we're getting in Dominaria, and the fact that the next set we get after that is a core set, the odds of most of the most prominent specs seeing a reprint before they have time to spike is extremely small. It It is feeling better than it did at various points last year, especially now that we're through the glut of Masters products. Yep. And I mean, there is, as we're going to see in our cards of the week, uh, there's a lot of action. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. All right. So what's, what's the breakdown for today? Uh, well, as you alluded to, segment one is our top movers. The, uh, we'll be covering all the cards that increased in price this last week, or at least increased enough to be worth talking about. Segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will share a few cards that we think could rise in price in the future. Uh, segment three, our metagame week in review, we'll touch on some modern events, a deck or two, just kind of a, a quick overview. And segment four, topic of the week, the co- collation issues, collation, coalition, the collation. It, something glorious. Co- co- yeah, coalition. Well, there's a uh, there's a card with that name, something something coalition where you win the game, whatever. Uh, the coalition errors. Oh, co- oh, coalition victory. Coalition victory. That's what it is. Coalition victory. So this is not a victory of co- of coalition for wizards no. uh, with masters twenty five. So we'll we'll get into that shortly. Uh, let's start segment one. Top movers. Our first card of the week. Uh, mages contest foils from two fifty to five dollars. Um, I, I, other than it's an invasion foil and there's no copies and it's a goofy card. I don't think this suddenly showed up somewhere. It's just someone bought the last copy, I guess. Yeah. I don't know anything about that card. Moving right along. Hex parasite from new Phyrexia. Uh, foils moving from four or so to about $9. This is a bit people speculating on sagas being breakable with things that can add or remove counters. I'm not 100% sure, because um, I haven't read through the rules notes carefully um, in the leak, as to whether manipulating counters on these things actually works. Um, why wouldn't it? Because th- it's possible they have a rata already out of the box that says, if if you remove counters after you've gotten to ex- such and such a chapter, like I don't, I don't know that you can roll them back. If you go to like chapter two in the saga, 
I'm not sure removing a counter takes you back to chapter one on the next. Turn. I'm not sure why it wouldn't. I mean, well, you, we'll you might be right, up. but I have no reason to suspect that it would not work. It's a lot of effort to remove those counters. So if you're going through that to keep triggering one of the phases, remember, you can only keep triggering phase one or two because it sacrifices after three regardless. Uh, then I guess you can have it. <laughs> I, you could you could use your hex parasite to keep triggering phase two of Frexian scriptures and destroying. Oh, it would keep destroys all non artifact creatures. That works. You can use hex parasite to just wrath every turn and it survives. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All right. Next up, it That's is funny, funny. Right? terrible, funny. Next up is Captain Sisay uh, from Invasion. We uh, we saw foils and non foils pop. Uh, good luck finding any foils uh, or owning a foil from Invasion. But the non-foils from Invasion, 18 to 38, pretty good jump. And I can confirm that at least one person paid 38 because I sold a copy. Um, these saw a little bit of action back when the uh, Planeswalker rule was introduced, or at least when they turned Planeswalkers into Legends. Captains to say at that point jumped from, I think, a couple bucks up to like 10 or 15. Just kind of been hanging around there for a little while and uh, doubled up again up to 38. And I mean, there's not... Not more supply now than there was before, right? It hasn't been reprinted. So overall, I would guess this is probably a fairly sticky price, at least if uh, Dominaria brings any cool any cool cards along. We, we've already seen a bunch of Legends that are going to make people want to build around Legends more in general, in the EDH specifically. <laughs> and... um. You know, we already saw a spike on Sise and the other related cards, Untede Dake and Honor Worn Shaku and all the other nonsense that that peaked and then receded as people realized you probably can't earn a slot in the respective decks. Um, but Sise, A, is a commander unto herself. You can People are already running that deck. She also fits into a bunch of other decks, like attracts Planeswalkers. Now the Planeswalkers are legendary. And unless she gets a masterpiece in Dominaria that they've been smokescreening, um, yeah, I, I have every reason to believe that she continues to gain ground this year. I've got a couple of FTV foils up on eBay where I'm like the 10th best price on the site, and I'm in no rush to get to yeah, the front line. Yeah, I would not be there at this rate. So I just looked up the Sagas thing, and I don't think it works. It says, in the notes, it says, once a chapter ability has triggered, the ability on the stack won't be affected if the Saga gains or loses counters or if it leaves the battlefield. Well, that means if it hits if it hits the third one, you put the third lore counter on, with the ability on the stack, you could remove the counter. But Oh, yeah, you can't, you can't change the chapter by removing the counter. Yeah, but that, but that still doesn't mean that if you remove the second phase, that your next, it's not going to affect the ability on the stack, but then the next time around, if it's adding the second counter, that's still the second step. Pretty sure. <laughs> if counters are removed from a saga, the appropriate chapter abilities will trigger again when the saga receives yeah, well, lore counters. Removing lore counters won't cause a previous chapter ability to trigger. In other words, if you remove the Wait, second remove. phase chapter, phase one doesn't suddenly occur. If counters are removed from a saga, the appropriate chapter abilities will trigger again when the saga re receives lore counters. Removing lore counters won't cause... Right, so the removal of the lore counter does not cause it to trigger. But Hex Parasite still works in terms of resetting it every turn and, and living through because it's an artifact anyway. <laughs> and that thing kills non-artifact creatures. Correct. That's pretty funny. That's Yeah, it's a lot of work. Like I don't it doesn't sound broken. Uh I'm not sure if it's a lot of work, 
um, it's a weird, it's a build around that you're going to have trouble bringing to fruition in a full deck list. Well, sure. I mean, um, you, what, it's yeah. some kind of like Tesserator build. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, the payoff isn't even that good. So like exiling all cards from people's graveyards, like whatever, I can pay zero mana to do that. So um, you've, you've got to somehow really be able to make that second phase work, do a lot of work for you. And Hex Parasite only removes counters? Yes. Uh, so the one that, act, that adds counters is the other one up on this list, uh, Power Conduit. Moving. No, wasn't that removed as well? Like remove a counter from a permanent, and then you can put counters on creatures or charge counters on artifacts. So you still get to remove the Saga counter. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to add counters to these things? Speed them up. The, uh, proliferate. Right. Hmm. There's enough ways to manipulate these that somebody's probably going to find some way to get there. Not on all well, of them. I mean, Most of them look pretty bad, but maybe the damage stick- one. Yeah, so you can stick this. You can stick Phyrexian scriptures in Atraxa if you're playing Planeswalker Atraxa, and then immediately proliferate and destroy all non-artifact creatures. And then your next turn, you exile graveyards, or you proliferate again. You get all three effects in one turn. On the trigger of the final one, it gets sacked, right? Yeah, it seems I I would have to now that I would have to check the rules text for. But it is my understanding that uh, it does say sacrifice after three, so it's going to leave the battlefield. Yeah, so the only ones you'll be able to abuse then repeatedly are the ones you can roll back to. Yeah, essentially it's phase one or two. You can you can abuse phase one and two. Mm-hmm. All right, so moving right along here. We've got next on the list. Withdraw from Prophecy. Foil's moving from $2 to 5 I'm assuming that's a popper play since that's a pretty decent bounce spell in that format. Uh, I would be inclined to agree with you. Mes- hey, you want to you hear something cool about Withdraw? Okay. Withdraw allows you, if I'm remembering this correctly, to exile a token Simeon Spirit Guide from your hand for mana because of an odd way the rules are written. Because if you create a token of Simeon Spirit Guide in play and then you cast Withdraw keeping in mind that state-based actions are not checked during resolution during resolution of a spell, you return the Simeon Spirit Guide token to your hand. It cannot be exiled from your hand, but it does not get removed from your hand by state-based effects because you're still resolving it. Because And then the second line is then return another target creature unless to its owner's hand unless its controller pays one, and then you can exile the Simeon Spirit Guide token from your hand to add that one mana. So <laughs> you would never need to do this, but technically you can. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I'm going to get that wrong if it's on the judge test. Yeah, well, th- that's my a buddy of mine, like a level two, Blaine. Thanks for the info, Blaine. You told me about this years ago. It's finally useful. Next on the list, Mesmeric Fiend from Torment. Foils moving from $2 to $4. Um, has Mesmeric Fiend been printed in common? Is this a popper thing? Yeah, Torment. All right. Well, that's what that's all about. Lana War Elves is getting reprinted in Dominaria, so 7th edition foils have not surprisingly made a move from 20 to 40 plus. Um, that's probably relatively sticky. 7th edition foils are already hard to find, and now people who particularly want to, to bling out their standard decks, I guess, have a, a high-end option. Um, 
Aura Samet Guardian, a fairly useless card from Future Sight. Foils moving from $350 to $8. I've got to assume that's just people cleaning up uh, a relatively rare foil. Uh, would be my guess. I just checked her, and she doesn't mention Legends anywhere. She, I mean, she is a Legend, but she doesn't have anything going on there, so I'm not clear what the angle is with Osiris or Ores. She's also the worst of these, essentially. They're all pretty bad, but yeah. Corlash was fine. Sure. It's cool. You had, to, you had to work for him, too. Sure. Uh, and, and by modern creature standards, it's too much work for the outcome. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But Corlash was cool. Uh, Wild Cantor, the one mana, one one that you can sack to add the mana back to your mana pool. It's a mana neutral spell. Foils from two to four fifty, five bucks. Um, I would assume this is part of a modern combo deck. I know it's been in them before. None of them have ever stuck around long enough for Wild Cantor to matter that much. Uh, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the guess that that's what it is. Looking this up on on Goldfish, the only deck that runs this that I can find is all spells. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a storm counter. It's a free storm counter. I know, uh, I saw somewhere someone playing some, like, two-drop deck that it might have been part of that that was, like, a bunch of uh, Burning Tree Emissaries and whatever that other one is from Innistrad, Shadows Over Innistrad, that does something similar. The two mana that adds two when it comes into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, Herbalist, I, I think. Yeah, I thought Wild Cantor might have been in there. Yeah, Wild Cantor was in there because it turned on your... Uh, herbalist because that one required you to have lost a permanent uh so mm. i i guess that could be it uh but i mean this is only in guild pack so it's not like there was a huge supply left at this point speaking of which all spells has to be one of the weirdest decks of all time in magic it's a strong claim it well i mean it's the one that uses Undercity city informer and balustrid spy right the one that takes about like half an hour to figure out how it actually works. If you've never looked at it before. Uh, I'm going to, I actually don't have the list in front of me, so I'm not even sure. And, and this copy, <laughs> the one I'm looking at, <laughs> aside from running one wild Cantor runs an underworld Cerebus in legacy and finished fourth in an IQ. Hmm. Huh. That's not a card I expected to see in legacy and certainly not expected to see it in this deck. That is a curious one, I suppose. If you guys have never seen this deck before, this is a Tinder Wall, a Wild Cantor, four Narc Amoeba, four Elvish Spirit Guide, one Laboratory Maniac, four Simeon Spirit Guide, three Undercity Informer, four Balustrade Spy, four Street Wraith, and one Underworld Cerebus. <laughs> Alongside four Pact Negation, two Summoner's Pact, three Cabal Therapy, four Dark Ritual, and four Gataxian Probe, four Cabal Ritual, four Manamorphose, one Dread Return. And if it feels like I'm going on, it's because this deck runs no lands. Oh, instead, <laughs> one of these. Three, three Chrome Box, four Lotus Petal, and a Bridge from Below. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to go through this entire combo right now, but people should look it up because it's hilarious. Yeah, the Underworld Cerberus is, and I'm not exactly clear where it fits in, but I can see kind of how it does. It's a curious, curious strategy. Yeah. Um, it's a good way to get people to hate you. Yeah. Unlikely anyone will interfere with you because they won't know what you're doing. The only people that play it are the people that like to explain their decks to people for 20 minutes. Yeah. All right, so next on the list, a couple things from 7th edition moving. Grizzly Bears and Telepathy moving from... Grizzly Bears moved from $13 to almost $30. Um, 
I'd be so surprised if I sold a Grizzly Bear as foil, but I guess like seventh edition collectors need every card. Yeah. Um, probably more importantly, Daybreak Break Coronet from Modern Masters 2015 uh, made a move from $8 to 20 That one's probably pretty sticky because the reprint in Modern Masters 2015 is a few years back now. We haven't seen a reprint and Boggles is pretty good in Jundland. Yep. I, Daybreak Coronet, I mean, I think... Someone else was asking me about Boggles cards on Twitter this week. I think they're, it's not a flash in the pan. That's the wrong expression to use, but it's certainly having a moment, but it's never really stuck around the format long enough. Uh, it's not, it's not a staple deck. It's a metagame deck. And I say this is somebody who's played, I think Boggles might be the second most played deck of my, from myself in modern um it's just it's good when jund is very popular but terrible in other formats so it's useful right now but that will that will wax and wane it's kind of deck you can meta against but if it find catches a tournament unawares where a bunch of people have don't have the sideboard slots to deal with it i mean namely you want untargeted sacrifice effects and sweepers right and and the and and Pin and point removal that can get rid of some of the enchantments, like abrupt decay over a fatal push, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, depending on what weapons you come loaded with, you may or may not be able to levy your levy said weapons against your boggles opponent. Um, but again, unlikely to take up a much larger percentage of the meta than it already occupies. Uh, I would agree with you. Would so, agree with you. definitely selling my copies. I have non foils, foils, and Japanese foils, all of which are now up for sale. Yeah. Okay, you uh, you mentioned telepathy, right? You did say that. Yep. Okay, so Goblin Warchief uh, out of Scourge foils four fifty to about eleven for a little more than a double up. Uh, it's a seventh edition for uh, Scourge foil, sorry, um, but also it's being reprinted in Dominaria uh, if if the uh, release notes are to be believed. So people are probably yep. trying to pick up the original foil copies um, ahead of it showing up in standard again. Uh, Warchief was the wait. It's- it's, a, it's actually that it's showing up in modern for the first time mm-hmm. because Scourge was a pre-modern set yeah. and it wasn't printed in any post-modern set. Oh, so th- this potentially makes goblins better. Yeah, that is real relevant. And Goblin Warchief gives them all haste, which is a important keyword. Um, that also enables all sorts of, not necessarily combos, but some pretty cool stuff. Uh, are we going to see Goblin Sharpshooter back again? A competitive? Uh, who knows? Maybe. No, it won't. But it'd be cool. <laughs> I mean, if a goblin deck emerges, emerges because we get one or two particularly potent goblins in Dominaria, and it makes people start testing in modern, um, goblin pile drivers probably, foils are probably the thing to watch for. Uh, yeah, yeah, goblin pile drivers. That, that card always makes the deck. Yeah, that card is pretty, uh, pretty obnoxious. If, you, if you've never played a pile diary before, that thing ends up attacking for seven on turn three or something. Yeah, it hits real hard. Uh, you do not want to be on the receiving end of that guy. Uh, and protection from blue. So can't be balanced by Jason. Gets past Stormtrooper. You know, Stormtrooper <laughs> cards in everyone's deck. That's easy. They can't shoot for shit. Yep. Um, okay, so next up is Trench Worm Foils from Invasion. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. This is dumb. Why? It's not even in popular. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Drog Skull Reaver from Dark Ascension. Moving, foils moving from 7 to 21. That's a Soul Flayer deck that's been featured on some streams and articles and so forth that people keep trying to fool around with and it never really seems to get there. 
Um, Tormod's crypt time shifted foils from 12 to 40. That's uh, I've noticed time spiral foils being under pressure recently. They're relatively rare, and the ones that are um, more playable than the others seem to be uh, being targeted. There was another one on this list, Dan Dan, um, which is not not being targeted Don, because Don. it's played Don Don. I've chosen um, to believe that it's Don Don. Either way, I could care less. It's a fish for one that nobody ever plays. Two dollars to nine dollars, um, unless you're finishing a set, no one's going to care. Um, Ethereal Armor is another Boggles card from Return to At- Ravnica. This is the kind of card you might have sitting around in a binder, folks, that you want to like dig through your your cards and see if you've got a random foil of, because um, it went from three bucks to twelve. Um, that would be a nice little trade out for some store credit if you had yeah a couple of those lying around. Ethereal Armor is a cool card, very effective. Awesome in Boggles. I actually have a foil place. Uh, I haven't decided if I want to sell mine yet or not. I, I don't consider the original printing to be particularly resistant to reprint so i wouldn't want to be caught holding them yeah it's more it's more like do i want to keep my own personal set or am i okay with getting rid of them yeah um spawning pool from urza's legacy foils moving from a dollar to six dollars that's just a first year of foils thing going on um shivan dragon from revised moving from a dollar fifty or so to about six dollars um I think that's just <laughs> people reaching out to like plug the nostalgia gap that Wizards left open. Uh, I guess I I looked at this too. I'm not exactly sure what they're shooting for here, but okay, I suppose. Um, Greal Mind Raker foils from Prophecy, moving from two dollars to eight. Um, another card that I don't think anybody plays in anything, to my knowledge. Um, but it's from that same era of foils here that seem to be targeted as next on the list by whoever likes to get in on that all the time. Yeah, that, it's from Prophecy. Nobody plays anything from Prophecy. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Power Conduit before, about how it moved from 2 to 10 on the back of Sagas. Day of Destiny from Betrayers of Kamigawa is the enchantment that gives all legends plus 2 plus 2, I believe. Um, yeah. Foils moving from 3 to 20 on the back of people assuming they're going to want that in their Legends-focused commander deck, perhaps with Captain Sisse at the helm. Um, and then finally, Leyline of Singularity from Guild Pact um foils moving from or non-foils and foils both moving i think this is the non-foil price moving from a dollar to nine dollars on the assumption that it would be good to set up mox amber that seems like a real Uh, stretch well yeah essentially not only does it set up your mox amber though it also makes all of your makes everything legendary so like your opponent can't play two of anything. Oh, that's interesting, I suppose. So it yeah, it's got it's got some funky dynamics to it. So it's like, yes, it may turns on your amber boxes, it also does other stuff. Um <laughs> like a kind of incidental irritants. My friend uses it in his three and a half horseman deck with uh, uh honor worn Shaku, which it requires you to tap a legendary permanent to untap it, and then they're all legendary and it's uh lunacy. But a, a listener was arguing with me on Twitter this week that Mox Amber is a trash card. Um, and I outlined that because it's open-ended synergy, it is a huge spec target. Because the argument against it is that the consistency you would lose from playing all legends to make sure you can reliably turn it on, and legends that are one-drops, mind you. Um, and they can't just be any old one-drop. They have to be... Is it non-land or is it just creatures and en- creatures and enchantments? Creatures and enchantment and planeswalkers. 
Creatures, enchantments, and planeswalkers? Yeah, with three types, but it's not artifact because you can't turn it on with Mox Opal. Right. But not historic, which is weird, right? Like, we've got this new historic term, but this thing doesn't use it. Because it would be too good. Because then you'd go, okay, like, some one mana artifact, Mox Opal, Amber Mox turns <laughs> on from the Mox Opal, but now Mox Opal's on because you have Metalcraft, and now you have two... Mox is on turn one, and if your land was an artifact, now you have three mana (laughs) on turn one. Like you can see where that would go. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And actually, we got it wrong. It's add one mana of any color among legendary creatures and planeswalkers you control. So it doesn't even work off like Legion's Landing or anything. So I fully agree that this thing uh, can easily whiff in modern on lack of a deck shell and consistency. Um, But I know I would almost certainly run it into tracks of planeswalkers because. As soon as I get anything down, um, this thing turns on and makes perfect mana for the rest of the game. Uh, well, it doesn't make a rainbow, but it's going to be solid. And other decks and EDH will probably find a reason to run it. And I I hope it does nothing up front and tanks through the floor. Because the thing about this open-ended synergy it has is, is that it has is five or ten years down the road at the outside eventually there'll be a preponderance of legends especially now that they seem to be focusing on edh and printing lots of legends into it um that this thing eventually gets good right and in even in modern somebody will figure it out at some point like saffron will run something on it or something at some point um i'm curious it, it, it is it's definitely on my radar it looks like exactly the kind of card that a bunch of people will get hyped about and then the smarty pants will say, no, it's terrible and you're terrible and then it'll crash and go nowhere and then become a spec. Yeah, it's it's the worst card with the word mox in it, but it's still a mox. Yeah. So <laughs> we don't really know for sure. I think the idea that it might fall flat on its face out the door but could then wake up pretty hard later on is probably reasonable so saffron was making fun of leyline of singularity spiking um earlier this week on twitter and i i was crafting this like snarky well not snarky but like playful uh comment about uh on the assumption that leyline of singularity was like mirror gallery for a second wait you're gonna make make a snarky comment that if who who has who Hey, Saffron's the last person to talk about cards being unplayable. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He was well, he was like making fun of it, and I was like, "Wait, they're missing something." If and for a second, I thought Leyline said that like all uh, all legends are are not legends, like or oh, Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. You thought it was Hall of Mirrors? Is it Hall of Mirrors or Mirror Gallery? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the two. Whatever. Yeah, whatever artifact it is that lets you play multiples of the same legend. That's what I thought Leyline yeah. of Singularity did when I first when I before I looked it up. And so I was like, well then you can just go like land is a Ismaru and then like three of these and then Gideon. Holy shit, that's crazy. And then I was like, hey dumbass, that's not what that card does at all. <laughs> Moving right along, this card's still bad. Finger hovering over the tweet yeah, button. Yeah. I was like, maybe I should double I was check like, this. I should probably look that up just to tell. And I was like, oh, that's no, that's terrible. That would only just get you slightly ahead. No, that's definitely not worthwhile. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that, yeah, there we go. That's our top movers for the week. And, and so that was Let's like just- 20 cards that moved more than 100%. There was like yeah. 80 that moved more than 20. And there was a lot of important staples that were further down the list that were making moves. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. 
Um, yeah, and I, I suppose it's fair to point out here that you know we focus on stuff that's 100% or more, but that means sometimes we do occasionally miss stuff that kind grind. of matters. Well, yeah, not only the slow grind, but some of the stuff like, you know, if uh, if Tarmogoyf increases 50%, that's not really going to hit our list unless one of us makes a point to like notice it yeah. and catch it. But it's obviously going to be felt by people who are buying the card. Um, so we try to catch those where we can. Uh, but we do miss them at times, especially if it's 10% three weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, then it's really hard to catch those. Um, and, and, so just keep, you know, the, the, we have, we have a way that we track this, but like we can't track everything all the time perfectly. And that's a point we can't really stress enough is that percentage returns are never the whole story because you have to actually relate your returns in real dollars back to your hourly wage as like a reasonable baseline to compare to. So, I mean, I hate like, $1 cards that go to $2 because you're 100% up, but it's if you're selling a place at at eight and the time spent and whatever, and if you've got a decent job and you're a full grown adult, then that doesn't work out. But, you know, let me use my first pick this week to elucidate the point uh, or illustrate the point. Um, Cavern of Souls has already moved. It was like, a, I think you were telling me it was a QS pick like last week or the week before, other people have been talking about it for a while. I flagged it way back when MM3 M- M- uh, came out in just about a year ago, um, that it was going to be one of the ones to recover, and sure enough, it did. Um, because they moved this like 10-year-old rare to Mythic and then put it in a limited edition set that was a relatively lower print run than, than the master set that came before it and definitely lower than the two that we've gotten since then. And... So lo and behold, you know, I'm buying fresh copies this morning at $72 feeling confident. Now, why is that? Because it's probably only got another 25 or 30% to go. Like it, it could end up at 100, 110, maybe 120 this year. And that's not huge in terms of percentage gains. But if I get in on, the, on, that, on that at 280 a set and I'm able to out it at 400 and dip below that and offer it to somebody on Twitter at 380, I'm still going to clear 100 a set. I mean, for very, very little effort and, you know, to get a uh, hundred back bucks back on 300 inside a year is a very reasonable return. Oh, for sure. And this is, uh, you know, if it wasn't clear, we have, we have transitioned to segment two cards to watch Kevin souls, James first pick. Uh, yes. I think that you pointed this out to me and I, I thought it was, I, I took a look and I'm like, damn, this is a good pick because the supply is low across the board. We, I don't know where else they would put it, especially not where it would matter. Because even if you WMCQ it, uh, that's not enough supply to dent the price that much. Um, you know, what Snapcaster WMCQ is like $140 or something. Um, and uh, it's like heavily played in modern. It's like the 13th most played land modern. Uh, it's like the only non-shock fetch, I think. They're the highest non-shock fetch, maybe behind Eldrazi Temple. It's heavily played in Legacy. It's like the 15th or 16th most played land there. And it's like 11,000 copies in EDH. It's like, and, and casuals really love this effect because they hate their spells getting countered. So kitchen table magic players are not paying $100 for Cavernous Souls. Usually, most of them won't. There are idiots and some of them might. So like, even if a lot of those people can't afford it, there is still sort of the, or should I, I shouldn't say can't afford it. We're, it's not worth the money to them to put this in the yeah. play in, in their kitchen table. There's still pent up demand there as well that will at least help buoy the price. And that's the whole thing. When a card climbs up the price curve, not everybody has the same utility for any good. And 
you know, if if you have Cavern of Souls as I did in a in a like side deck, a deck you don't even play that much. Like I think my caverns were in my slivers deck, and I got rid of them last fall in advance of Iconic Masters. Uh, sorry, no, no, no. They were in my slivers deck, and I got rid of them in advance of uh, Modern Masters 2017. I think I sold them in like late January last year, and sure enough, I got reprinted. And then I bought them back in April at like 55, having sold them uh, north of 70. And now I have a chance probably to sell them again (laughs) because I never play my Legacy Slivers deck. And I also need them for five color humans, but I I haven't even really had time to take that out for a spin yet. So, you know, I'm happy to hold. And I actually started acquiring again this week, even though it's already moved up some because I I think it's going to get there. Like it's just got all those factors that you listed, like... Even if it was just Eldrazi and five color human demand, that would be a lot in modern. But as you said, I mean, there's like fringe decks like Slivers and Elves and now maybe Goblins and Merfolk runs it all the time. And the thing is that when these decks run this card, if they're tribal, that's why they're running it. it and they usually run four full copies. I mean, Bant Spirits runs it too. Um, there's, there's been a lot of tribal decks that have emerged in modern and this card is indispensable. So having moved it from rare to mythic seems like a tremendous mistake in terms of making it available, but Wizards didn't have all the information at the time. Leads me to believe that we will see a reprint, but that could be another year, year and a half out because it's only really become obvious that that was necessary recently. And the the rest of the year's product has already been signed, sealed and delivered for the most part. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say that it can't show up anywhere else because there is a couple more products floating around, but that is a pricey card to put some to, re- to include yeah and and it's probably got to be a, a promo because it's never had a promo and it could be something like a wmcq um or something similar but as you said that would only really put pressure on the foils which are peaking towards 200 and i'm talking about the non-foils getting in in the low 70s and aiming to get out over 100 yeah it's um it, it, it's well positioned i think uh and the buy-in is hard to uh it's hard to stomach that, I think, but it does seem very well positioned. And the guys over at QS want to pat themselves on the back for setting us up. Like, whatever, that's fine. Good job. But uh, I mean, it's still good. Lot, lots of people, lots of people mentioned it, and it was a good idea every time. Yeah, <laughs> and it's really not a mystery to anybody who tracks this stuff that the top cards that have uh, Modern Masters twenty seventeen. Are, are all making moves, right? Like Liliana has already made a move recently. Snapcaster has, and will probably continue to. Um, arguably, Snapcaster could be on this, you know, my list for this week as well. It's not here, and it wasn't in my article. Um, I launched a new series today called Tipping Point, which is focused on low supply cards, and I didn't include Snapcaster, but um, only because I ran out of word word space. Um, I mean, that's a card that's even more heavily played than Liliana. It was reprinted at Mythic from Rare, just like Cavern. And because it's like top five cards, top 10 cards in Modern, um, is going to appreciate another 10 or $20 before it sees a reprint would be my thinking. Okay, so now you're, you ran in the year pick of the week. Now you're running in the mind, buddy. <laughs> oh, that's yours? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I didn't notice that. By all means, Travis, tell me about your fresh unheard of pick snapcaster mage yeah well whatever dumb card blue card nerd mages yeah uh snapcaster from both innistrad and modern masters 3 currently they float between 60 60 and 70 i think it's 60 for innistrad and 70 for modern masters 3 um Mm. but it's more played and i double checked this because you mentioned it earlier and i double checked it. it is more played than liliana uh 
in basically all the formats. Like it sees more, it definitely sees more play, I think, in Legacy. It sees more play in Modern. Um, kind of shows up in more decks too at this point. You know, you see Liliana and Jund, of course. Uh, but beyond that, she doesn't get too much action in Modern. She also, you know, has, has kind of given up a slot to Liliana the Last Hope as well. Yep. Uh, where Snapcaster's like, and, you know, we just saw Jace reprinted. So now it's like, all right, Snap's in Blue White and the Blue White Tron decks and Just Guy. And, you know, he's just kind of everywhere. Um, so I, I don't know why. I, I mean, looking through it, the inventory is pretty low. Uh, there's only 22 Modern Masters 3 sellers right now, and nobody's got more than a playset. And I think that's only one person. So overall, supply is very low. The card is played more than Liliana, which is like $120. It's got the exact same printing. It was in Innistrad. It was in Modern Masters 3, and it was a WMCQ promo. Um, so if we don't see a promo on Snapcaster, this is riding up towards $100 mm-hmm. itself as well. Yep. I think so for sure. What's your favorite of the three Snapcaster arts? Um, the original one is certainly memorable, but definitely weird. Uh, it's I, I have a soft spot for art that I would not consider good, but that is sort of like memorable, um, which I think the first, the original Snapcaster fits into. <laughs> But the the newest one is probably like technically the best, but it's also super generic, and I am kind of tired of that. But also the WMCQ one is like clearly not supposed to be Snapcaster Mage, and it was just leftover art. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, I can I just go with yeah. none of them? Like none of them? I guess I would take the Modern Masters copy, but like I'm still not in love with it. It's a little weird to me that this the. The promo version, he's casting a red spell. I mean, of course, that's, you know, Snapcaster Bolt is kind of the classic. But because it's not an actual bolt, it's like a red, like, stringy thing weaving through the air. Leaves me unsatisfied. It does have the best dynamic motion. I think it has the best composition of all of them. Yeah. The, uh, the Modern Masters 2017 is kind of like uh, a take on the original, like this kind of weird gothic portrait style. Um, but I don't like the hyper-realism of the guy's face in the MM17 art. Um, I feel like the if you change that, if imagine that the MM3 art as a like a 3D world, right? Like physical location. Just move the camera to a different viewpoint, and I think that gets a lot better. If you did this where the camera was like a think of like cancel. Do you know? Do you remember that cancel artwork where the guy is holding? A oh, spell yeah. like in front of his face, right? Like, give me something yeah. similar to that for Snapcaster Mage with that same artwork that's on the MM3 card, and it suddenly it looks a lot more interesting because that cancel art is awesome. The, the, there are way more copies of Snapcaster sitting around than there are Cavern, which is why Cavern made my list. And the curve on the remaining copies is relatively shallow. Shallow, like every listing kind of ratchets up their price by a dollar, which is not signaling an imminent jump. I think one of the things going on there is that Snapcaster has been a card most modern players have known they were supposed to own for quite some time, whereas Caverns, people had left aside for quite for quite a while. And when decks like Eldrazi, when Eldrazi Winter came along and that deck emerged, and then later humans showed up um, and Merfolk start, took a couple of top eights and was no longer as laughable... Um, Cavern became more and more important. And I think that's one of the reasons that we ended up with not enough copies in, in the market is because it took people unawares 
Um, I don't think Wizards saw that evolution unfolding in modern quite that way. But the fact that it didn't show up in Ixalan block, which would have been perfect, um, and instead we got unclaimed territory, was that's a that's a decision, right? Like that's a specific choice you make to not reprint Cavern and instead give us something similar-ish. I do remember thinking that it was kind of odd that we got through that block without seeing Cavern because it just seemed like such a perfect place to put it. And, so I, and I think it, that it it, it, it comes back to this comes back to the difficulty of printing cards over thirty or forty dollars back into standard, and what that does to the EV of those boxes in the set. Um, so it, it, it's a tricky situation. Um, we're going to need more caverns. <laughs> we're we're a little further down the road. We're probably going to need more Snapcasters. Um, so I'm and I'm not really worried about either one showing up in core 2019 in July th- on July 13th, um, which is the next available slot. Uh, it's possible they pick off a couple of necessary specs there because I think like they need to, given what they left out of M25. Um, but I'm more curious as to what we're getting in November. Um, is that a master set? Is there a master set in November? And what's the theme? Um, what fits in there? What doesn't, et cetera? Yeah. Um, All right. What's your second so card? Next on... Uh, it's actually a pair of cards, both of which I think people uh, need to take a look at. Um, Sanctum, Sanctum of Ugin and Inventor's Fair Foils have been on my list before and really haven't moved all that much since I first flagged them. Um, still, you can pick them up in like the 4 to $6 range pretty easily. Definitely get them at 5 um, These are cards that matter in many of the versions of Tron. Um, Inventor's Fair um, shows up in all sorts of different artifact type lists. Um, uh, everything from decks with ensnaring bridge to Tesserator type lists, etc. because of its flexibility. And anytime you're playing big mana with colorless cards, Sanctum of Ugin is useful. Both of them have a role to play in EDH as well. Um, and their supply is not particularly deep given that they were um, printed in fall sets um, in two consecutive years um, in BFC and Kaladesh. Um, I'm increasingly feeling like Kaladesh boxes might be the breakout box of their generation um, because I think that the EV of the masterpieces is going to get high enough at some point that they're going, it's going to add another 10 or $15 to the value of the box. And there just happens to be a whole ton because it's an artifact set um, of cards that are going to be useful in EDH and that are going to unlock combos down the road. And there's probably 10 or 15 artifacts that meet that description. Things like Aetherflex Reservoir, Lifecrafter's Bestiary is in that block. I think that one's another revolt, um, but it's the block overall I'm looking at. And, um, uh, you know, Aetherworks Marvel and and all sorts of stuff. And Paradox Engine, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, definitely keeping an eye, especially on foreign boxes of Kaladesh, which have already started to dry up. But I think these two lands... You're going to get a lot of utility out of them if you're interested in artifacts and colorless cards in either modern and or EDH. Certainly not going to have any trouble holding on to them. It's probably a longer hold, like 6, 12, 18 months kind of thing um, before you get a chance to get back out strongly. But I was surprised at how shallow the inventory was. I think um, Inventor's Fair is curious. Uh, Sanctum of Ugin seems pretty well positioned. Uh you know, the, the supply, you know, I'm looking at like 40-ish, a little less than 40 vendors on TCG for foil copies. So definitely on the deeper side of things, but, you know, that price runs up 
two, you know, stops at around five, five to six bucks, starts at two fifty. It's, I mean, it's not bad. You know, you've got a pretty good EDH play pattern, like thirty five hundred decks, which is not a tremendous amount, but it's pretty good for a card that hasn't been out that long. Um, and it is, like you said, it's pretty open ended. Uh, people are going to be more and more. It's a lot of players building decks going forward will stick Sanctum of Wugan in their EDH deck just because it's essentially a free tutor at some point, um, especially if they're playing some Eldrazi stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think the road to Sanctum of Ugin foils is probably on the longer side, but it certainly is a type of card that could be a 15 to $25 foil uh, after a while that just kind of snuck up on people because Wizards just never got around to putting it anywhere. Yeah, I think your money is going to be like is going to turn around quicker on something like Cavern of Souls. Um, these are more about, you know, picks that are good pickups that will reward you in the long term. Um, but there's there's only 23 vendors for Inventors Fair foils, and that's a year younger yeah. than, than the Sanctum of Ugin. So that signals to me that it sees greater use. Um, and that curve is a lot steeper. It goes from like six up into 10, like relatively quickly on TCG player. Um, so, I mean, I think if you get in on those at like five or six dollars, um, you'd be looking pretty good. The other, the other one that also fits into this whole paradigm is Spire of Industry, right? Um, that's the one that makes colorless, but you can pay one to make one mana of any color activated only if you control an artifact. So it like fits perfectly into Affinity and they've been running it ever since it came out. You can get some of those foils in the $7 range, and I suspect they're going to end up in the 15 to 20 range, just like these other two. Yeah. That might even go faster. Uh, yeah, it's possible. I didn't realize Spire of Industry was that low, or sorry, Inventor's Fair was that low supply. There must be demand there that I am unaware of. Mm-hmm. Hmm. hmm. Uh, okay. That's... I, I think the moral of the story is that utility, art, artifact-related and colorless-related utility lands... <laughs> by the very nature of being colorless, are going to be useful in more decks than things that are more narrow. Um, and have these ones in particular were almost custom designed for use in modern. So, And as we've talked about many times, the sweet spot of overlapping between modern and EDH and being in foil is going to be useful to you as a player and a speculator. Yeah, cards that are good in EDH and modern and foil, bingo, right there. Good good job. Be there. Do that. What's, what's, <laughs> what's else on your list? Uh, so I have another card. This one is not as sexy, perhaps, uh, but True Conviction showed up. It's in uh, Scars of Mirrodin and Commander 14. This is the six mana enchantment that gives all of your creatures double strike and lifelink. It's a very powerful effect in EDH. Uh, non-foils. I'm not even looking at foils. Non-foils are like three bucks right now. Uh, there's It's in 10,000 EDH decks. It's a it's a quite a popular white card, one of the top. Um and if this just kind of keeps ticking along, you know, supplies draining, it's it's getting kind of low. I think it was the Scars copies was there was not that many vendors, um, and the other one had a little bit more, but still not that much. Uh, and you know, this this is the type of card that you know you can sneak in at two fifty or three bucks, um, and just kind of hang out. And if it dodges reprints for another six months, a year ish, uh, it'll be a nine or ten dollar card. And we see it all the time, right? And like these are the types of cards that we don't talk about uh in our segment one that often because they don't generally spike they're like james was saying earlier the that grind upwards um but like vetulcan orrery is like a 12 dollar card or something and it's like the what that card like mirrored in a conspiracy like yeah there you go because it's popular in edh and casual decks and true convictions the same thing so we're getting to that point where we've burned enough supply that the price is going to start moving meaningfully um and yeah without a reprint we're looking at probably close to 10 bucks 
I, this would never have been on my radar, but there's there's a couple of good strategies for these types of cards. Cards that are specific to EDH that are going to drain at some point that you could throw a few hundred dollars at and really help them move along on that on that path. Um, so say this is $3. A lot of the vendors on TCG are listing it at $3 plus $3 shipping, making it a $6 card. So if you add a bunch of that that to your cart and you're pay, you happen to be in one of the states that's paying the local sales tax, you're going to get closer to 7 Um so what you want to do in that situation, just to check when you're on the page on TCG, is you sort by item price, not item price plus shipping. Yeah. And then you see, you look to see if there's somebody that's got a bunch of copies at, you know, a high price to ship. But if you distribute it amongst the copies, if you're picking up eight or twelve copies, for instance, and they they want three dollars for shipping, well, then you're only paying, you know, a fractional amount of that shipping distributed across those copies. And then that's what you want to throw in your cart and check out with. Sort by item price may be the most important button you can click on TCG player <laughs> that people may not realize they're supposed to. Because I, you like you won't like if you're trying to scoop up a bunch of copies of a card, there's no better way to find I, I'm gonna call it a hidden deal. Yeah. And I and I reached out to them last night because one of the things that drives me crazy on that site is that adding to your cart doesn't keep you on the cart on the listings page. You know how it always pushes yes. you to the confirma- confirmation page and then you have to press back? Oh, uh, man, that drives me crazy. I hate that. I mean, and, and people will say, oh, that's, it only matters if you're buying 100 copies. But it's, it's dude, like you can yeah. just be putting well, deck together. It. I'm doing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also useful functionality for players who are trying to assemble decks, right? Like, let, let me give TCG some more free advice. Um, they, they could add functionality to the site that would tie in deck lists and allow people to auto-populate carts from them. And that would probably be very popular. Yeah, I think you've mentioned that a couple times in the past. Now, and I'm not, I'm not um, saying you're a broken record, like it, it's a good idea. Um, yeah. uh, one last thought I had that I did forgot to mention when you're talking about like Sanctum of Ugin, Ventress Fair, and it applies for like True Conviction too, is you know there are certain cards we talk about that are definitely sort of like a buy a couple copies and look to resell them, which is like a Cavern of Souls, Snapcaster Mage type of thing. Yeah. But there are also cards that are completely serviceable as like a trade for this at your local store type of thing. It's like it's more of a trade target than a, a card to buy. And I try and mention this occasionally, but like those to me are those types of cards. Like, oh, this guy wants to pick something up from me. I'm not sure what to, fit, to finish off the trade with. Oh, these types of cards are a good way to balance it. Why don't I grab those? Uh, and then you know that, like, if you got to pick up a $3 card out of the guy's binder somewhere, that's a good place to check. Yeah, I mean, the, the other strategy here, especially when you're dealing with EDH cards that are, say, sub $10, so it's not really worth you listing them onesie twosie on eBay or TCG player, um, is it's a buy list play, right? Like, the one of the cards that, I, that contributed to one of the good buy lists that I sent Card Kingdom uh, a few months back was a whole pile of Grasp of Fate, right? Um, and a whole pile of Atraxa. And Atraxa had appreciated quite a bit, but Grasp of Fate had gone, like my in might have been like a dollar sixty or something, and they were offering four ten trading credit. I mean, you don't want to buy a card, one single copy of a card at a dollar sixty and try to sell it at four ten. Like you're doing the you're living your life wrong. But if you bought 20 or 30 or even, you know, eight or 12 copies and you're going to put together, you're trying to do that kind of thing across a bunch of different cards and then you're going to put together a buy list order and turn it into some dual lands or something. That's now you're living your life well. <laughs> we, are, we are now a life advice cast. Life, life yeah, we, we can be like, we, we can be like a ninja. Speaking of which, transition, did, did you did you see what went down on Twitch last night? 
Uh, I mean, I didn't watch it, but I know that he played Fortnite with Drake and some other people. Brother, it was the most surreal experience as a gamer. Like one of one of the weirdest things I've ever had seen happen. And so I think was- that like everybody felt the same, and it was it actually felt very special. Like it sounds really weird if you were if you didn't watch it. Um, and I don't think that the YouTube clips are going to fully cover it because they're going to be like segments of the play. Whereas I was like sitting in the back on my, on the couch, like sorting cards and, and doing work on my laptop while I watch these guys for like five hours. But, you know, I'm from Toronto. Drake's from, from Toronto. I have friends of friends who used to hang out with Drake when he was like post Degrassi days. Like he was like this, this no name Canadian CB, like Canadian public television actor that, you would never have imagined would have ended up being this massive international hip hop star. <laughs> like anybody, anybody that knew him in his early days did not see that coming. And here you got this guy, Ninja, who was a Halo player when he was a teenager, com- you know, a successful competitive player. He had some real problems with one of his eyes where like his cornea was disconnected or something. And it looked like his gaming career was at risk. And then he starts playing PUBG, and then he transitions over to this new Fortnite game and the company that made Fortnite was practically failing and Fortnite looked like it was going to fall in its face. And then they imitate PUBG with a new version of Fortnite. And all of a sudden it explodes into like this international sensation. And Ninja starts building up followers like crazy. You know, like on a, a good weekend on Magic, if you have like a major tournament going, is like 10,000 people watching, mm-hmm. right? They peaked at 600,000 people watching. And this was for casual play from the dudes was that last night they hit 600 yeah last night Six hundred thousand, and this started at like 11 p.m most of the east coast was asleep already and then drake and juju from the pittsburgh steelers (laughs) i guess and travis scott another rapper and then kim.com shows (laughs) up like the guy this is like the international like mp3 mafioso dude that like got raided by the fbi in new zealand oh, that, and all his yeah. millions, hundreds of yeah that. <laughs> his hundreds of millions were impounded and i'm sitting there on my couch last night at two in the morning watching drake juju ninja and kim.com play Fortnite. <laughs> it, it truly felt now, surreal <laughs> the important question were was anyone other than ninja anywhere near competent they, they were, they were, I think that's what made part of what made it so endearing, right? Had and they I think ever it, turned the game on before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's okay. why they were interested in playing with Ninja. They all play. And and mm-hmm. I think like Juju and, and Kim.com are like competent players, like say my level, like win a game here and there, but, you know, just blase, blase average players, never going to do yeah. anything special. Um, you know, Drake was like new to the game. He he's recording an album in Miami that he's talking talking to Ninja about on stream. While Ninja's in his basement in his like pajo- in like his jogging pants with his blue hair and his like yellow headband on that he wears when he wins a game, <laughs> and with like n- no backdrop behind his computer setup. And the dude is breaking records on Twitch for an individual streamer. And keep in mind, this is a guy that in in the course of a few months has gone from zero to a thousand. He's got. I think it's 180,000 subscribers on Twitch now. So he's clearing a half million a month in subscriber revenue. That's so obscene. And he has 5 million followers on YouTube now. So he's monetizing the content twice over there. Plus sponsorships, plus uh, donations. 
I watch this guy all the time oh, while I'm working now. God, the and, donations and make my skin crawl. I don't, I don't understand this culture at all. Like this, this is part of the gaming culture I don't get. If I'm watching like Todd Stevens play or Caleb, every once in a while I'll throw those guys a few bucks or get, give them my subscription for the month because you know dudes are working hard. They're trying to like build something out of nothing. That makes you want to donate. But Ninja is going to be a multi-millionaire. It is a multimillionaire. The amount of checks he has incoming, even if they haven't landed yet, like say he's on a two or three month delay on that stuff. Yeah, he can't go out and buy a Porsche today, but that's forthcoming. And you get these people that are that check in with him and say, oh, you know, I'm really depressed. You get me through my depression. Uh, here's a hundred bucks. Yeah. And you're like, why are, you, why are people that can't afford it donating a hundred dollars to millionaires? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Same pants. reason people buy and sell the same magic deck once every three months. Cause it's, just... <laughs> uh, but, but, but I found it fascinating in, in the sense that tw- like the potential for Twitch, and this is something that Ninja talks about on his stream a lot, which I think is, is prescient that, you know, he, okay. So he has 180,000 subscribers and that's an all time record, but that might be tip of the iceberg. There's 7 billion people on the planet and gaming is bigger than Hollywood. So, Twitch is is not ascendant. Like Twitch, Twitch is at the start of its curve of popularity. So we're going to have, give it a couple of years, we're going to have gamers in their basement making two, three, four, five million dollars a month, outstripping all but the highest paid professional athletes. I uh, it, it was very curious, and um, I'm not a Fortnite player, but I still found the idea of this event uh, curious. Um, and and I did all I did kind of have a thought that it was sort of a I don't want to I don't know if it's a watershed mo- moment but it certainly uh, seems to be a new hash mark um, in in, yeah. in the culture. It, it felt important. The meme that came out of this, right? Like of like Drake and the Hotline bling st- like dance, like the dishing items. out the yeah. materials. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. And I mean, I think what part of what makes this so endearing and what what makes me feel like there's so much more to go in terms of the growth for this kind of entertainment is you've got Drake just being the regular old dude. So what is that relatability worth to his brand? You know, the God's plan video was not, <laughs> was wonderful, but it's still a calculated move, right? Like that's a decision you make that you're going to go out and give people a bunch of money and, and I and will make a pretend that I know what this music and, video was about. I agree, James. Yeah, look it up. You'll un- yeah, look it up. You'll understand. He he went around Miami and gave people a bunch of money and then filmed oh. it and made it a video. And so, you know, <laughs> the every time they kill somebody, the chat's going crazy, claiming it's God's plan, and it's just a meme factory. But the fact that all these superstars are playing in an arena where they're no longer the top dog. Was I was fascinating because it made us made them so relatable, and it's it's funny to see Drake being shy <laughs> to this guy, to this guy who's playing video games. Well, in his it's basement. also funny. Sorry, As, go ahead. And, and then to see like the game unfold, right? Like you you asked, like, could they pick up a controller? Yeah, they were doing okay, but Ninja was carrying hard. Which under when you see a really great player playing alongside like average players it shows you how great they are. Like there was a, there, uh, like Drake and Ninja played by themselves for a little while, I think three or four games and they won two of them. And, you know, Drake clearly felt good about it. Like thought like it was awesome well, to part, play part with of, Ninja. Part of that, part <laughs> and, of that right there is that you've got what is a, 
you know, intrinsically this sort of like mundane average guys in their house doing this activity, right? Like, you know, that's, it didn't really like matter how Drake, good Drake was or whatever. You just took him out of his element and you weren't putting them somewhere else in the entertainment industry. You were putting them just sitting in front of a computer playing a video game, which is something everybody watching can uh, can understand, right? They, they can see themselves there. So you're, 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 you're putting him in a scenario that makes everyone watching feel like that's very relatable, which I'm sure helps tremendously for him and gets people jazzed about it too. Cause it's like, Oh, even these like wildly successful, like A-list personalities, S tier personalities can still hang out at home and jam video games on a Wednesday night. Right. Like, uh, you know, Mila Kunis used to play WoW. She kind of kept it under wraps and eventually used a voice modulator because people were annoying the shit out of her. But like these people do this type of thing and, you know, seeing it on display like that uh, really, I'm sure, gave a lot of people the fuzzies. And this is the tip of the iceberg, right? Because, you know, Twitch and and Twitter and Epic and, you know, everybody involved saw a huge benefit from this, right? So this won't be the last time with these guys or other people. Like Ninja's going to make a habit of playing with celebrities. Then other big streamers are going to make a habit yeah. of it and it's going to be a thing. And it's going to go on for quite for forever. There's going to be like all this overlap for years and years and it's going to define part, you know, core well, portions of the gaming culture. And I think that the reason I, you know, this long-winded dis- discussion, which though fascinating is somewhat off topic, I is to circle back to how ineffectual magic is as a brand in terms of understanding that space and and being able to leverage it to their advantage like they they had that uh was it the seahawks player that was big into magic um that they've had on game nights a couple times yeah. with the command zone guys and you know that's cool that's a, that's a smart move but their lack of outreach their inability to get to the kitchen table as a topic is what's holding them back. And it's the reason that they're never going to have a 600,000 viewing day on Twitch because they don't understand this culture. They, the, most of the people that are in executive positions inside that organization, even the ones that have been recruited in from ostensibly textile companies or roles, like I think the new president of, of wizards is from Microsoft or something. Right. Um, that came from the Xbox side. Um, it, it, it's not enough. Like it, it's going to be the like people sub 30 that were died in the wool in that culture that grew up as gamers that understand Twitch as core entertainment that don't even have cable in their houses and don't watch TV anymore. Other, unless it's Netflix that are going to drive that revolution. And at some point or another, we're just going to have to go in Hasbro in general is going to have to come face to face with the fact that they should be outsourcing this stuff, that they need a, a strategic partner. Um, as much as they have failed to actualize that in the past, if they do not go down that road and find a strong, enduring partnership, they are going to get left behind. They are being left behind. Yeah, I, it's I have you talked for so long and then I forget all the points I want to make. Um <laughs> I mean, yes, you're completely correct. Arena is clearly them trying to get to get that started. Uh, I guess they, you know, it's it's probably hard to make a push like, oh, let's get Drake to play Magic on stream when you're showing off MTGO. Uh, that's just, you know, not the you don't you don't ask out the person of your dreams and you know show up in a rust bucket. You want to make sure you're going yeah. to impress uh, when you make that big push. Um, and I get Arena is probably moving in that direction. 
but I agree that like they've got to really play catch up and they could make good use of a contractor or somebody who knows this stuff and knows how to do it. Somebody that's going to have to be definitely somebody young because, you know, most of this older generations and you and I, uh, more so you are definitely on the, <laughs> uh, sort of, and pro- mo- really both of us are on the wrong side of this um, in terms of age range, right? Like you're going to need somebody who you're, like you said, like grew up in immersed in this culture because the gaps in generations from like a, a social and cultural context is ginormous relative to where it used to be. Um, but it, but it, it, there, there's definitely an opportunity there for them to, to make it up. I guess we just have to see if they can pull it off. Do want to take a moment to say that Fortnite it's bad and dumb. It's not, it's not a good game. It's not, I, I like I, it. But I just, I'm like, it's really cool that all this is happening. But I'm like, God, Fortnite? Really? Like, I like I started playing PUBG and I've been really enjoying it. I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm in the game that like it's popular. Like I completely miss League of Legends and Dota. I never liked any of the MOBAs. But I'm like, all right, I am with the culture when I'm playing PUBG. It's like, oh, no, Fortnite's really popular now. And I'm like, no, this game's bad. Stop playing it. <laughs> I strongly disagree, but that's a debate for another time. Um, the, I guess the other little leak that I caught on Twitter this week um, from a tweet that was later deleted, um, so it's relatively spicy, oh, that's what that was, was that there was, yeah, there was some Wizards unveils about stuff, plans they had for Arena where there wasn't any screenshots or anything of like dem- demonstrable upgrades, but they've at least caught on to a couple of things that they need to do and are claiming that they are doing them. One is that I, I, if you've ever watched people stream Eternal or Hearthstone, you can hover over the cards in the Twitch stream and it shows you what they do. That is such a huge quality Wait, of life so if, upgrade. So if I'm in Twitch watching LSV play Eternal, I can put my mouse yep. over the card and see it? Yes. Yes. Which is what I've talked about with you in the past, remember? Vaguely. That's a cool feature. That, that, that this is something they need to do and it's been done. Um, first I saw it was in Hearthstone. Um, they added it, I think, last year. And recently I saw it, LSV playing with Gabby and and I moused over and was like, I was like, I, you know, I can't really watch Eternal because I don't know what these cards do. And then I noticed that the card popped up when my mouse moved and I was like, oh, forget it. This is totally fine. That's a big moment. I was about to turn off the stream. And that's how our significant others feel every time they see us watching a Magic tournament. So the ability for them to boot the thing up on their iPad while they're sitting beside us, and if they show the slightest bit of interest to tap on a card and see what it does, or you mention something and they just, you know, politely check it out, gives Wizards an on-ramp that they desperately need. My complaint has always been that Wizards does not reach outside the circle of existing players, that they have given up on building the user base and have focused almost exclusively for five years or so on terms of squeezing more money out of each player per year. Yeah, I remember. And that, 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 you know, that that's a reasonable strategy, but it's not the whole thing. Like you should be doing both. You should be growing the player base and squeezing more money out of each of us every year by providing a high quality product. I remember thinking about this ages ago uh, and like our, and I'm like, why are they not RFID chipping the sleeves so that the, at the pro tour and the finals, so that we know like everything that's on the table and what's going on. And you can see them on your computer because they're, you know, they're keeping that information updated for people. I'm like, why don't I know what is happening right now? Even if I know the card, sometimes the glare is bad enough that I can't see what's going on. I'm like, there should be, you should be making the information about the game more accessible to the pl- to the people who are watching it uh and you know th- well, this and, switch and, overlay and, thing and, is just the the next the latest version of that 
Yeah. And, th- and that's why I've talked about in the past as well, is that you could do a Microsoft Surface yeah. project. And it's not, it's a little weird to refer to that technology because it's like 10 years out of date, but it, like light table technology where you use gesture-based commands on a touch screen that's lying horizontally in front of you. So what I think should happen to Magic is that, yes, they need to build up all this arena stuff, but they need to have a mode in arena that's like top eight mode. And they use it at GPs and Pro Tour. And when you make top eight, you put your deck aside, it's loaded up in arena, you're playing at a light table, and then everybody gains all the benefits of you of watching you play online. They can touch the cards, they can rewind the play, they can play out the lines differently against their friends to see how they, the game might have turned out differently. They can buy cards through the interface. Think about how powerful those tools are if implemented yeah, properly. Cool. And we are a million miles yeah, from all of that. That would be being having people put their decks aside and hop onto something like that so that people could go back and replay the match type of thing or, you know, or then like, you know, it's game mode. And then there's like review mode where you can be like, tell me the odds if I like cast this draw spell that I'll draw this other card in the deck, <laughs> like stuff like that. Like in this game state, like what are the odds that I would hit this draw type of thing would, you know, it'd be really cool for people to do stuff like that. Fascinating, huge upgrades in, in the viewability of the game. And, and there's just so much like material down that path that benefits the game. Right. Yeah. Do you know where we are right now, James? Uh, heading into segment three. If you start if on Moto, if you start the game with a ley line of sanctity in play, the game restarts. <laughs> just you just can't. I think it's sanctity. You just can't start the game with that in play or the game restarts. So I, I, I mean, the only like reliable way to play Magic Online is to install Windows 98, right? God forbid that it comes to that. Next, they're going to be telling us we have to install Windows me. Uh, <laughs> so, right. so here's here's my final point. This is something I, I thought of this week that I haven't mentioned before um, on this topic. I I'm starting to wonder whether the correct move for Magic is not that all cards are um, chipped. You go to a new card back. The card backs are scannable, or the card faces are scannable. Everybody has an app that's related to their DCI number, so you have an account on your phone where you can scan, you buy the cards physically still and you play with them physically, but you can scan them into your collection and then you have them in the digital version like Arena. Yeah. I mean, that's... So, so you can either acquire them through the economy of Arena, but if you own the physicals, you automatically have them in Arena. Yeah. Yep. Yes, of course, that, that cannibalize, that, that disassociates, like separates the dual revenue streams which is clearly what they're trying they would be trying to preserve in the alternative but it's such a better experience and a better game and more so much more modern and future forward overall i feel like it more than justifies that you know the the need to micromanage how that all works uh yeah there's i mean there's a lot of business decisions to take into account there for sure i mean that would until reworking the entire structure of magic but you know i remember when i started playing magic or when i was playing magic back in the zendikar era i'm like why are there not inserts in each pack to give me a free card in mtgo to facilitate the transition like this would just be a much bigger version of that uh yeah they've done nothing to like 
build the, the connection between the platforms or to use, you know, paper magic as essentially a, to, to essentially make paper and moto the same, like the same environment, you have the same cards type of thing, like your collection is the same across both of them. So you have your physical collection and your digital collection. Uh, yeah, it would be, it would be really cool. Um, I, and you know what the, you know what the massive side benefit that makes up for the revenue differences if they go that route? What's that? They get to be the platform that automatically connects buyers and sellers and takes a tiny fee every time you exchange cards. Yeah. I mean, that would, would, yeah, that would dramatically change the secondary market, like unbelievably so. Uh, because now, like, you could, especially because you could take a card, a paper card, and scan it into your arena account. But then, like, what stops your friend from scanning into their arena account? I guess you'd have to print unique codes on every card. So they can only be added once, type of thing. Well, um, yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Every 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 card is in fact unique, and it can only have one owner at a time. And you can transfer they, that ownership freely. But they are machine readable. But you know what's you know what's yeah exactly. We've seen with like QS's ion scanner technology, and the same thing from TCG Player that that you know, and they're at the like early stages of of how effective that technology is. It's going to get better and better over time, and and that's just visual like. And we know that the cameras on current cell phones can handle that. You don't necessarily need to have a special a special camera attached to your computer to do it. You know, the cameras on the latest generation of phones can probably handle it, no problem. And so, and and think about the possibilities if I'm in California and I'm willing to sell my cavernous souls through the app, and the other guy just wants them on Arena. So I transfer I transfer ownership to the dude, and he's playing them on Arena for a while. And if I try to show up with my cards at the tournament, they get scanned, I guess, or something like there's all sorts of like problems down that path. But if, if you can, if you can figure out the dynamics of fluidly moving the asset ownership in and out of the digital space, it gives tremendous flexibility to the brand. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I agree. That would be cool. That would do your Microsoft surface idea, uh, the, you know, the light table thing where, uh, you have to digitally own the deck that you showed up with. So like, this is my 75. Yep. And then like, you also have to have it registered to your account as well. I mean, that could cause problems too, but that would facilitate that transition a little easier. Uh, I think the point being is that essentially there are a million ways wizards could do everything better and they're doing none of them. <laughs> uh, or doing it extremely also, slowly. Yeah. It's also getting late. So and we have two segments left. So can let's, we just, let's buzz through this really quick. So the metagame we can review, we had the modern, uh, modern or legacy for SCG last weekend. I think it was a modern was open in modern. Cause it was like Dallas, I think. Right. Yeah. And it was only 405 players, not a huge event. Um, and it was won by Gruel Ponza. So in a world where people have greedy mana bases and there's a lot of Tron, uh, apparently blown up lands is pretty good. Yeah, uh, it was pretty cool to watch. I've I've been a fan of Stone Rain for a long time, uh, so I enjoyed seeing it happen. Um, I am not convinced that it's good. Uh, you know, decks, cards like or uh, yeah, decks like that can kind of get lucky at times. But it was still very cool that uh, that made it that made it as far as it did. Um, you know, and, and I browsed through that list as well, looking to see where any action may be, uh, and I I don't I don't see it. I think that there's, you know, financially, I don't know where to go with this. Like Arbor Alpha just reprinted. Utopia Sprawl was just reprinted. Bloodbraid Alpha, there's a million copies out there. Like there, this is not generating that demand. Inferno Titan's been printed 80 times and has no demand anywhere else. Tireless Tracker's already popular. So like this doesn't change anything. 
the spell suite is all common. Like you got one of Planeswalkers, Blood Moon's already popular. Uh, I think Trinisphere was the only card in here that was really interesting, and those were gone by the time I looked Sunday night. And more to your point, a lot of these cards don't overlap with other decks. I think the best card in here midterm is Foil Tyler's Tracker. Mm. Um, Which is like $40, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and Blood Moon's going to come down quite a bit with this printing in M25 and slowly rebound over the course of a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's not a lot of overlap with other decks in the format. So I think you can make a pass on this. The rest of the top eight was Storm, Infect, Storm, Black, Green, Tron, Eldrazi, Tron, Jund, and Blue, White, Control. Um, the stuff that you would expect to see. Um, nothing jumped out at me as being super, super interesting that that would be anything new or exciting. I, I am curious to see whether... Um, what's going to happen in this format, given that not very much in Dominaria seems to impact modern. Most of the pros I, I queried this week seem to feel the same as we did, that it's mostly an EDH set. Um, and I suspect we're going to have to dig pretty deep based on what we've seen so far um, when we have Todd Stevens on to talk about that set. But we've only seen about 55 or 60% of the set, so there could easily be some surprises left. Yeah, and it also strikes me that Dominaria is a very has some odd stuff going on that, uh, you know, when they're spoiling Ixalan and it's like, oh, look, out of 10 cards spoiled today, four of them, are, you know, six of them are tribal cards for vampires or merfolk or pirates. It's like, obviously, none of these really matter at all. Uh, whereas Dominaria is sort of like all over the place and it's got some weird effects. So it might take some time to figure this stuff out. Yeah. So uh, moving right along. Uh, topic of the week. I think we can talk about the quality control issues with uh, M25. Um, there was a whole bunch of fuss in social media land. Here's the quality control issue. Wizards can't get control of their card quality. What the hell? Stuff is garbage. Yeah. Somebody pulled, somebody tweeted into our timelines this week. Uh, he talks to us frequently. He pulled cards out of the package where the top half was just peeling. Like out of the package it was peeling. Yeah. <laughs> and so let me break this down for you. Wizards shifted their printing probably to China or to a US based print house that was particularly cheap. I, I'm not clear which. I got to finish my research on it. Um, so it doesn't really matter where it is. What, what matters is that they, they have the CEO or president of Watsi in an interview with Hipsters of the Coast recently was asked about this. And his response was kind of flippant. He said something to the effect of, hey, listen, with, with card quality, you can have one of three things. Oh, right. You can have speed, you can have it be cheap, um, or you can have high quality, but you can only have two of the three. Well, <laughs> that suggests that they deliberately chose to have low quality and that because they want it to be fast and they want it to be cheap, they're not going to do anything about it. And until the players, um, you know, get together a pretty good shitstorm on social media, nothing much is going to get done. And it's kind of unfortunate because there's been so many other reasons to complain and kudos to be given out for the good things that they've done in the last year. It's been like a real mixed bag. Um, but we're coming off people being disappointed with the final set list for M25 in general. People talk p- talking to us in, about our, in our timelines about canceling orders and so forth. Um, and the EV looking like it's likely to crash just because there's not enough like core staples for that are in super high demand in the set. Um, 
you know, the last thing you needed was for the quality issues that have already been noted in the last several sets to be extended here. And what I'm hearing from our people in Europe is that um, because all the master sets seem to be all printed in the same place, probably in the, in the U.S., um, they're having the same problems with their distribution in Europe because with, with sets like um, Ixalan or whatever, Europe still, I think they still use Carta Mundi, which was like the original Belgian printer who was known to produce high quality cards because they did it for many, many years and, and, and were kind of experts in, in doing it. I suspect that there were major cost advantages to going somewhere else. And that's what, what has led us down this path. Um, but it's, it's, you know, a slightly, a slight change in quality, who cares? No big deal. Um, but they've made a bunch of questionable decisions over the last few years. Like I, I popped a box of MM15 um, this week. And I don't know if you remember this, but those cardboard packs they tried out were a complete disaster because they rub on the cards. And so every time you pull the foil from the back of the pack, you have this chance of it having like tremendous amounts of like micro abrasion damage from shuffling around in the pack. They all have these weird printer streaks on them and stuff. My box of Russian Kaladesh was like about 10 to 15% of it was hypersaturated with black ink to the point where some of them are probably fairly rare uh, collectibles. And um, if they weren't so common (laughs) and you know, people have been noticing that Iconic Masters and now M25, you know, they wa- like warp really easily with any like change, slight changes in moisture, um, which definitely should not happen with a card game that is, you know, predominantly based on having multiple rarities and the presumption that those cards will be worth something down the road. So, I mean, it's not a good position to be in. And then on top of all of that, you have Rudy from Alpha Investments throwing out a barn burner of a, a clickbait video where he opened two boxes of M25 early and got essentially the same rares, mythics, and uncommons in both boxes with a slight amount of variance that I attribute to the fact that mythics don't appear in the same number in every box. They appear two to four copies per box. So that was going to throw things off a little bit. And the foils were a little off too. So then everybody starts going crazy about how blah, 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 this is this big deal. So many of us threw out feelers into the community to say, like, can you replicate this? And most people come back with, no, we can't. Like, I talked to Ed from Cartel, and he said, you know, we we didn't check it real carefully, but we, we opened a ton of product and didn't notice any patterns. But I talked to other people, and at least three, two in the U.S. and one in Europe, said, yes, we carefully examined this while we were opening it. And after we had been through a couple of cases, we could predict based on the first box in the case what the next box was likely to have. And it didn't work 100% of the time, but it, it, it does not look properly randomized. And so what that suggests is that on the cutting room floor, you know, the, the big, big sheets come off the printing press, they, they cut them up, they put them in the piles, and then they get collated by, you would think, a sorting machine probably. Um, but it could be by hand. My, my guess is it's by a sorting machine. Um, but you would assume that there's supposed to be a step where they shuffle them and then insert them or that they put them into different stacks and then the machine changes, like varies how it sort, how it mixes them in. So maybe it's like this card goes is every 30 second rare for a while and then it's every 40 second rare you know what i'm saying like you can you can have a relatively simple program that semi-randomizes 
but makes it so that you don't notice runs of the same cards between multiple boxes. So then Rudy posted another video where he tried to replicate it um, because it's massive clickbait <laughs> and everybody, everybody was, you know, questioning whether it could be replicated and he couldn't. And then he posted a third video. And in this one, he p- picked two boxes from completely different cases from different distributors. And they had the exact same foils, minus, plus or minus one or two cards. I mean, you should not, it should be insanely rare to have boxes share a majority of the foils being the same, even in a set where there's a foil in every pack. I haven't done the math, but I would have to imagine that the odds of getting 24 identical foils cards in the foil slot would be uh, astronomical to say the least or yeah or even like 20 or 22 right like because there's there's some it it's never gonna i don't think it's gonna be predictably perfect but it's still problematic because if if people get enough data to be able to map like to be able to open a couple of pot box couple of packs and map the rest of the box then it makes loose packs a complete disaster now, keep in mind, loose packs are a dumb thing to ever buy anyway, unless you're buying from a reputable LGS that you trust. Not the kind of thing I recommend buying on eBay, et cetera. But, you know, not everybody has $100 to throw around, so there are people that do it, and they should be aware it's of it. It's, you know, if you need, just need uh, a draft set for your friends, it, it's, you yeah. know, it's, it's reasonable so to want to buy loose matter. packs then. Well, it does matter because well, you know and, you're and not you want getting to, anything good. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the problem is that if if it is determined that there are, like, a certain sub like a certain number of configurations for a box or that the run of rares in a row continues because keep in mind there's like 50 something rares and you only get 24 in a box and a few of those are going to two to four of them are going to be mythics right so it's not actually odd that you would have rares overlapping between two boxes because you get a chance at roughly half the rares each box so some overlap is totally normal and, but that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing like the same pack in the same slot in the same box, sometimes being the same. Yeah, I don't. That's very, is, very I don't weird. know what to make of this both from the sense that like, I don't know how much it, I don't know how much it matters. Like in the sense that like, what does it matter to the sure. average player that like these boxes are, have coalition issues? I don't think it does, right? Like most people are buying it because they want to grab some cards you know, that's fun for them to open or they're going to draft it or what have you. So like the coalition issue isn't really going to come up unless their shop is like cracking one box in the case, realizing what other, what boxes will be good and which ones won't and only selling the bad boxes, I guess. But like how many people around, you know, how many stores are really going to go through all that? It's going to be minimal. Um, yeah, in, in a reputable LGS, it's probably yeah, a non-issue. You're also, I mean, technically all boxes are mappable. Uh, it's just sometime because there's no true randomization when it comes to computers. Um, but it also would require in certain situations more boxes than they would ever print of a set. So, you know, they are effectively unmappable uh, for the most part if they do it correctly. Um, well, I mean, in, in, in RTR and Theros... There was a mapping software that was available for purchase that successfully mapped like boxes within with very high certainty after you had opened. I think it was, yeah, it was something like, I can't remember exactly how many packs it was, but it was like, if you opened a quarter to a third of the box, you would know what the rest of it was you were getting. And I, and I actually used that to pull uh, packs out that had good cards. I knew that I wanted to resell and used the rest for draft. Yeah. Which is and and it was and it was super effective. Which by, like that that was useful. By the way, I want to point out that that is uh, also of questionable 
ethics unless you are telling your draft partners that you did that because not oh yeah this is just like this is with my brother right like we're just cracking packs and playing a sealed in our living room well, sure uh, it's not like i did it's not like i run a store or no but, so but i just want to point that out for our listeners who are like oh well that's not too bad also keep in mind that like not only can you pick out the cards that are valuable you can also grab the packs that are bad but have cards that are absurd in draft and put those aside too and be like wow now even my cards that are bad i can win money on because i know that i'm going to open three on color rares <laughs> but don't do that <laughs> yeah so anyway it, it, it's not clear that there's going to be enough information or any interested parties that are going to attempt to map this carefully but it even if it doesn't become a major issue for the players this is not a trend that should be um ignored because it, it's part of a much larger issue which is just that whatever printing house they're using has poor quality control in general because you're seeing it even if you don't believe, if you think this whole thing is tinfoil hat, the, the quality of the cards is a certainty. That, that's been demonstrated, is highly, fully demonstrable throughout the set. We've seen it for multiple sets now. All the stuff from Ixalan is super warpy. Iconic Masters was the same. M25 is the same. If Dominaria is the same, then this is the permanent offer being made from Wizards to its player base in its 25th anniversary. And the 25th anniversary would have been a really great time to correct that that perception issue and well and solve the that, problem instead they have, they have refused to put out a, an actual statement about it despite people being you know everyone pretty much in agreement that the quality is not sufficient and so players are going to have to either start voting with their wallets or they're going to need to get organized and get something done because of all the nonsense we complain about all year this is actually one of the ones that i think makes the most difference well, because feel of product in hand as a marketer, being a bad experience is a really scary place to be for brand maintenance. Yeah, yeah. so I agree with you there that it, the the impact here is not like, oh, what does it do to me as a player? But it will really matter, uh, you know, if people are like kind of on the fence. It, it's the difference between something feeling like cheap and throwaway, like Digimon cards are, like where it's just like, oh, this is junk, and I can tell because the art is bad and the card feels bad. Versus like, oh, this is something that someone put time and effort and like as a quality product and makes me feel comfortable investing money into it. And I, I kid you not, I'm going through and like picking up cards. Um, in an order to like throw in my EDH decks. And I'm like, I don't even know if I want to bother to get a foil of this card where normally I wouldn't even uh, question it because the quality is so bad that I'm like, uh, like, is it worth spending the money on this crap type of thing? Um, it, it has absolutely impacted whether or not I was willing to purchase Exelon yeah. foreign product, for uh, instance. Um, because if, if the sets that, are under this this uh, pro that fall under the banner of this problem end up having a bad reputation. That's not stuff I want to be holding. Um, and that that is certainly a problem. And and I agree that it's it's less about like what this matters to the player today and more about what it signals coming from wizards and what they think is important and what they think we think is important. And um, you know these are they're sort of larger issues than just what does this mean for the Masters twenty five box? I'm going to crack and because the answer is it doesn't really, but it will matter somewhere else in some other less obvious way. When somebody queried me on Twitter, like, hey, this is just a card game, like, you know, they're selling you paper, you know that. And I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's a huge rule set around cards not being identifiable in tournament scenarios. The tournament scene is still an important part of the community. 
And in competitive play, players are already turned off using foils. So you hardly ever see pro players using foils because it can be, if it warps too much, it can be quantified as a marked card and they could get a game loss or a match loss or be ejected from the tournament. So the you already have the premium versions of your cards, people being dissuaded from using them on camera. That's not right. And now you've got even the non-foils warping so that they could potentially be end up being marked cards in a tournament. No, 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 no. no that's not it's, it's actually like, you know, some players may kind of roll their eyes, but it's like, if you're on the pro tour, it's super matters not to play with foils. Like the only people that play up with play show up with foils are people who are um, essentially like first time players, right? Like no, no returning pro is bringing foils to the pro tour because they know how big of a gambit that is. And games are won and lost by such slim margins at giving people having the chance of a 5% chance of giving someone a free game win over the course of a pro tour because your card is warped is, uh, is way too much. Baytog was showing off some foils she acquired or something on Twitter earlier this week, and Owen Turtenwald comments, oh, I'm I'm a pro player, so I, I would never touch yeah. a foil or something like that. Is that what you want your Hall of Famers tweeting? <laughs> that they wouldn't play with I'm, the yeah. premium version of your product? I, I'm a pro player, so I can't use your the best version of this product. Isn't that isn't that what you're supposed to be targeting? And so <laughs> and so if foils can't be fixed, there are other treatments. Magic does not need to continue to have foils <laughs> in the in the current incarnation as the premium version of the product. There are other ways to go, and they need to experiment with those pronto. Etched gold plates. Yeah, or yeah, they're made of chocolate. <laughs> Excellent ideas. Um, yes, there you go. The printing house has plenty of ideas if they know what they're doing. If if they're going the with a discount printer that's not interested in engaging in you know, research and development with them, that is the wrong choice. Your brand is built around a product made of paper. The print house should be experts in their field. They made the right choice working with Carta Monday. If these guys are way, way cheaper, there has to be some medium option because I can't believe that long-term this doesn't do enough damage to the brand. Clearly, they disagree. I mean, they, they didn't make these decisions blindly. They think they can get away with it. So if the pr- players don't punish them with their wallets, they will. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's disappointing because, you know, the digital landscape is evolving out of control compared to what wizards can handle uh, and what keeps them interesting and exciting or keep magic interesting, and exciting and fun is that it's this really, it has been a quality, a physically quality, high quality product that you enjoy holding. It's like the experience of putting cards and sleeves and putting them on a mat and like turning them sideways and shuffling your deck. Like all of that matters tremendously to the success of the game and like what differentiates it from their much stronger digital competitors. Um, and that legacy of, of having that that huge back catalog of cards that are available to you. And um, because people want experiences that aren't just digital, right? Uh, And you see this all over everything people buy. Um, You know, half the stuff they buy goes way more digital and they want only digital. But then they also enjoy doing a ton of stuff that's not anywhere near computers. You know, board games are hugely popular. And the more pieces and the more things you can touch and, you know, the more physical objects you get to hold and the higher quality it feels, the more, you know, the the more fun it is to play with that because that's missing in so many other places. And if Wizards can't put together a digital product that anyone cares about and also can't produce a physical product that nobody enjoys holding, where what are they left with? 
Yeah. All right. And I mean, it, yeah. it, I'm nowhere near quitting the game, nor am I stopping purchasing product. I just talked about buying a whole bunch of product. But <laughs> as a player, not a speculator, I am much I, I, I'm offended by the fact that they won't address the issue and that it's been going ongoing for so long. You know, like if, if you've been playing for the full 25 years, you expect them to play into that by providing higher and higher quality product, not lower. And yeah. And, and what I can say is that this is actually not isolated with Wizards of the Coast. This is part of Hasbro's whole thing overall. In the Transformers world, which is another side of this hobby I never talk about on here, but that I'm you know, well-versed in um, the plastic's been cheaper and cheaper. So, I mean, this, this is an ongoing thing um, that Hasbro tries to get away with using the lowest quality. Remember product when possible. they were metal? <laughs> I had one. I had a metal Optimus well, Prime. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the, like the metal ones were Diaclone that was like licensed robots that they brought in from other, uh, um, properties from Japan. So for instance, Jetfire was that white and red jet from the mid eighties that was like partially metal. And a lot of the metal based transformers were metal because they had been brought mm-hmm. over from that other property. And a few others were, were just a thing, but again, they gave up on that, right? Like even by the, by the mid eighties, they had given up on, on including metal diecast parts in, in the bots and the plastic in the seventh year of transformers is significantly worse than the first and second. Mm, it's a bummer. All right. All it right, is brilliant. like 1130 at night. I have to go to bed. Uh, where can our you guys can find, find me uh, at MTG critic on Twitter, Twitter, as well at Twitter, um, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com, including the tipping point article series that I just launched tonight that you guys should all go check out. You can also find him on Fortnite as <laughs> MTG Craddock. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would love oh, to play I, Fortnite with listeners. If people want to ping me, you can DM me on Twitter to get my PSN account. I considered making that uh, offer and then decided not to. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you're going to be – my friend in Barbados, my final point of the evening. Uh, was a Paragon fan, which was Epic's other game. And they gave up on Paragon and switched to Fortnite when it took off. And he literally yeah. almost cried. This is like a, a four-year-old <laughs> grown <laughs> Caribbean man who I've, I rarely expresses emotion in my presence. And it lo- he literally had tears in his eyes when the like streamers were talking about how Paragon had been canceled. <laughs> and he's, he's refused as a result. He says that Fortnite killed his, his beloved game and he will never, he's sworn he will never touch Fortnite. God, the people at the <laughs> Epic game studios must have whiplash from how fast they turned from <laughs> one product to the other. Oh, I didn't tell you I did. Uh, amusingly, I've been playing a little path of exile again and I had a, uh, somebody with the name TCG player, trade with me and also uh god what was the other name somebody else with a magic character name showed up uh it was it was funny that i just like oh what where um <laughs> it was it was just funny to see like magic people show up and then the one guy's like oh yeah i just bought some commander cards on tcg player and i'm like did you buy them from me yeah <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. So I'd, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools, drive better returns, and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
All right. Uh, I'm Travis Allen on Twitter, Wizard and B-U-M-P-I-N, every Monday at mtgprice.com with the Watchtower series, also the Cartel Aristocrats uh, webcast. And uh, that brings us to the end of episode 110. Oh, uh, James, great conversation uh, as always, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.